Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Macro Minutes called Sunburnt uh, Bonds. I'm Jason Daw, your host for today's call, which we're recording at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on August 22nd. Uh, so, ouch, you know, a sunburn, um, you know, never feels good. And this is probably how fixed income investors are feeling. Um, after a disastrous year for bonds in uh, 2022, the total return for treasuries has slipped into negative territory year to date um, recently, and it seems as though um, you know investors added duration exposure 25 to 50 basis points ago in this up move, and there's little appetite to increase exposure uh, right now. This is leaving uh, the low liquidity dog days of summer market uh, susceptible to trend following and inflicting more pain on the longs. So uh, today, to opine on whether these moves in the market are justified, will be myself, uh, Peter Shafrick, and Blake Gwynn, and Alvin Tan is going to round out the discussion on China, which also has uh, direct implications for global uh, bond markets. So I'm going to kick off the discussion with a few observations and opinions, expanding on what I said earlier. Um, you know, first, you know, the severity of the bond bear market uh, cannot be understated from a total return lens. Uh, prior to uh, 2021, there was only small losses on a total return basis over any 12-month period uh, back to the mid-1970s, uh, but U.S. Treasuries lost uh, 2% in 2021. Uh, they cratered uh, 12% in uh, 2022, and in recent days, uh, the total return in 2023 has dipped into uh, negative territory. Um, so as I mentioned before, investors uh, generally jumped in and added long positions, uh, maybe midway through this run-up in yields, and this is leaving the market with uh, trapped longs, uh, positions uh, getting stopped out, and susceptible uh, to the machines and uh, trend followers. Now, granted, there is fundamental justification for at least some of the move, uh, given uh, how the macro data has evolved recently. We've had resilient uh, growth. There's also been uh, higher real yields and um, the sharp reduction in 2024 rate cut pricing um, has been another big factor in uh, this move up in uh, term yields. Um, so if indeed uh, there's not a lot of money uh, to be put to work in fixed income, it might take a more sizable string of weak uh, macro data uh, to push yields materially uh, lower. Now, the market's moved further than I thought it would, but at least over the next few weeks, uh, summer trading, I'm unwilling to jump in and get long. I am more convinced, however, that eventually uh, we will see a notable slowdown in growth. I don't think the growth cycle is as strong as some people um, are making it out to be, and I think the narratives are uh, too positive uh, kind of at the moment. And I would say that, you know, at least in the U.S., there's nothing in the current uh, data uh, that precludes a downturn uh, from happening in the future. And again, it's probably just uh, a matter of uh, timing. Uh, before I turn it over to the next speaker, some closing comments on the Bank of Canada. Uh, the market's pricing around a 40% chance of a hike at the September meeting. And that's not unreasonable ahead of the GDP data uh, next week. Our uh, modal forecast for the bank is no change in September as the preliminary signs of uh, slowing uh, should offset concerns about sticky inflation and be sufficient to keep them on the sidelines. 
Uh, so with that, uh, next up is Blake uh, to discuss the U.S. bond market and Powell's uh, Jackson Hole testimony uh, later this week. So I think um, my comments are going to be, you know, pretty closely mirror uh, what you said up top there. I think in the U.S. the sell-offs basically had three parts. I think, you know, at the very end of July into the, you know, into the first week of August, I think there was some fundamentally justified part of the sell-off that was, uh, you know, came around the change in YCC. Um, we got information around the refunding process. Uh, they put some questions around supply, brought term premium back into the forefront. And also at the same time, the economic data was really supporting this kind of soft landing narrative. So, so some of this was justified. Then I think there was a second leg where um, we started to get into some positioning pain. We moved through some technical levels. Long end ball was spiking. And there I think it was more driven by this kind of forced selling um, and, and some of these more kind of technical factors. Um, now over the last week or so, I think we've entered into almost a third section, which is that we're really just wondering higher because – there's no one around to buy. I think a lot of the long-term buyers, as you mentioned up top, already bought, um, you know, 15, 20 basis points ago. They, they bought dips that occurred um, either late last year or pre-SVB. And there's very little dry powder left to put to work, even though these, um, you know, these, these levels are probably more, a more attractive entry point. Um, I also think, you know, to that extent, there, there were prop shorts. I think a lot of those got cleaned out as they took profit 10, 15, 20 basis points ago. So there's really not a, a lot of that to take uh, to take place yet. Um, and then also, um, you know, I think there's no real technical levels up here from, from a, you know, kind of chart perspective, we've entered into this kind of no man's land where I don't think there's really any, uh, you know, clear signs of support um, that the markets are, are looking to. So that just kind of allows us to continue drifting higher. Um, and lastly, I would say, you know, I, I always hate kind of saying this, but late summer trading conditions, I mean, have to give some respect to the fact that, you know, a lot of people are out on vacation and liquidity is probably poor. So you have to throw that in there. Um, in, in the very short term, I think we can probably stay in, in this higher range, um, perhaps even continue, continue to drift a bit higher over the next few weeks, um, at least until, you know, we've got NFP on September 1st, and then we've got the long Labor Day weekend right after when, when people will really be coming, um, you know, back to the desk in full. Um, but, you know, kind of a more short, uh, uh, away from the short term to a more medium term basis after we get past, um, you know, that Labor Day uh, holiday, I, I, I do think that this level of rates is a bit unsustainable. Um, you know, I think for one, data is going to come back to, to earth a bit. Um, you know, right now we've got, if you look at the city economic surprise index, we're at the highs of the entire hiking cycle. Um, you know, so that's got to swing back at some point, even if we're not getting outright bad data, uh, at least getting some misses to what are expectations that keep getting marked up and marked up. Um, so we will see some disappointment there. Um, I, I think the pricing out of cuts is, is probably close to topping out. Uh, right now we've got Z3, Z4, um, you know, a proxy for the cuts in 2024 at around, um, you know, getting very close to, to 100 basis points. Um, I think anything less than that as far as pricing of hikes is, is a bit unsustainable just given the asymmetry of the risks over the next year. Um, not necessarily our, car, our call, but that's a lot of time for something to potentially break and force the Fed into a, a very significant cutting uh, scenario. Uh, the market has to respect that asymmetry in the risks. Um, and I think a very similar story with our star, which has been getting a lot of play the, the, you know, the last week or so heading into Jackson Hole. Um, right now we've got five-year, five-year rates around 380. That's essentially the, the uh, level with October 22 highs for this cycle. And, you know, moreover, I think we're, you know, 50, 60 basis points away from the highs reached in the taper tantrum of 2013. So very, very elevated levels there. Um, I put out a piece uh, that goes into more depth on this yesterday. Um, you know, I do think Fed estimates are going to start drifting a bit higher for that long-term kind of neutral rate. Um, but I think the changes will be fairly marginal, and I don't see them going back to those GF, you know, pre-GFC highs. It's largely because 
lot of the secular factors that pushed down our star to begin with over the last decade are still going to weigh on our star going forward. So, um, you know, I don't really see expectations for a higher star as a, as a really strong thesis uh, by which to get, you know, structurally short rates here, at least not on its own merit. Um, it's a very long, slow burn type of thesis, and I don't really think it's going to be worth as much as expected. So if I can kind of sum all this up, I, I think, you know, fundamental developments um, late in July and into August um, do uh, uh, increase the probability of soft landing, you know, bring term premium back into the forefront, um, and, and probably justify a higher yield range for Q3, Q4 than we've been forecasting coming into the summer. Um, but I think we've overshot that range a little bit over the last week or so and expect us to dip back into something closer to, say, a 375, 425 range uh, by mid-September. And I expect that if we get there over the next few weeks, um, that that's, that's a range that should hold for the re- remainder of this year. Um, now, as to what could move us sustainably outside of that, um, either the top side or low side, I think that's going to take some real big shifts in, in the paradigm, but, but we'll save that for another call. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll pass it along. Okay. Thanks a lot, Blake. Uh, over to Peter on the European markets. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Blake. Well, first of all, the first thing to note is that whilst um, a good part of this year, bond markets selling pressure could be traced back to events in Europe. Uh, at the beginning of the year, when European Central Bank hiked rates faster than previously expected, and when the data turned out to be overlooking data and turned out to be quite strong. And, and what we've seen is that at this part of the year, when the bond market was under pressure, Treasuries were actually outperforming. This is not the case this time around. Um, and the latest um, wave of selling pressure we've seen should very clearly indicate uh, or very clearly indicates um, that it's emanating not from our shores. But nevertheless, obviously, these are international markets and we're all related, so we tag along. But you could see Blake was highlighting to the technical factors. In neither bonds nor in gilts, uh, we have broken through uh, the previous highs that we've seen or established earlier um, in the cycle. We're bumping along very close to the peak, but we haven't broken through. Um, equally, um, we hadn't, haven't had the same kind of selling pressure emanating out of real yields. Um, over here in Europe, real yields have been going much more sideways, um, which is another indication that um, we've been following the US um, rather than leading it. Um, and when you look at the data releases that have been coming out, um, they weren't spectacular, but they weren't particularly weak either. Um, they pretty much came in line with expectations of both Bloomberg consensus as well as the respective central banks. Um, and the message that we've gotten from the central banks was a mild hawkish bias. So I think the market is essentially sort of sitting here waiting for the next data points to arrive, waiting for guidance from international markets, waiting for guidance from central banks, which over the summer period hasn't really been forthcoming. Now, having said all that, I still want to stress that so far what we haven't seen out of Europe despite the forward-looking indicators, particularly the PMIs, having turned significantly lower, is that the hard data has followed. Um, And in particular, I stress um, an an element that we have been uh, stressing for many, many months now, is that labor markets remain exceptionally strong, uh, much stronger than you probably would expect uh, at this turn of the cycle. And that, of course, means that the underlying underlying, um, dynamics are such that central banks will have to guide the market hawkish. And I want to return to something very briefly um, that Jason mentioned at the beginning of the call. One of the drivers of the latest selling um, uh, pressure that we've seen was that we have been pricing out rate cuts in the 24 um, forward space. Um, And this, of course, is something that particularly the ECB 
<clears throat> to a much lesser degree um, the Bank of England have been indicating they have been indicating that they get very close to the peak and we can have a debate about whether that's going to be at the current 375 or whether they're going to go to 4 ultimately in case of the ECB and how many more rate hikes we'll be getting from the Bank of England but the key is that the, the message that we're getting is that even if we're reaching the peak the market should not expect a quick turnaround um, and the central banks, particularly over here in Europe, to cut quickly. Um, and I think that's something that we will hear more and more as we approach the next meetings and as we come out of the summer period um, when uh, central bankers would make more appearances. And I would remind everyone that um, Lagarde is also speaking at Jackson Hole, so we might hear that message already from her there. Um, so, therefore, my summary at this stage is our markets have been selling off as well. I totally agree at this stage. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be buying straight away into this um, bond market sell-off. There are probably still lopsided positions over here in Europe as well. Um, and um, I think the, the question that ultimately remains to be answered is how long will these policy lags be? How resilient will the economy be? And I think for the time being, the only answer for that can be probably longer than we thought and probably more resilient than we thought. And with that, I'll hand it back. Okay, great stuff, Peter. Um, so Alvin's up next to tell us what's happening in uh, China and with the renminbi. China's growth rebound following the um, pivot away from zero COVID is uh, fast losing momentum. And um, we got um, important data to confirm that the slowdown has accelerated um, into the third quarter in the past uh, fortnight. So last week, for example, we got the key growth indicators for July and particularly uh, industrial production and retail sales uh, showing the loss of economic momentum uh, into the start of the third quarter. And before uh, that, uh, we got the credit um, growth data, which also shows the decelerating uh, credit growth uh, in, in China. The um, it's important to note, um, again, that China never had the pandemic fiscal handouts that were common in the developed uh, economies. And so households and firms have become uh, very cautious uh, in their spending and borrowing behavior. And this has led to a fundamental lack of demand uh, in the economy. And uh, to add to this, uh, exports growth has also tumbled um, recently, uh, which is, um, of course, uh, exacerbating the, uh, the downside growth pressures are emanating from the um, domestic uh, demand deficiencies. Um, and on top of all this, the uh, property sector downturn, uh, which has been a major drag on the economy, appears to be worsening. Uh, so in particular, uh, recently we've seen that the credit problems within the property developers uh, have um, definitely intensified. Um, so Country Garden, which is um, by some measures, one of the uh, largest uh, private property developers in China is now at the brink of default. Um, two years ago, when all these um, property credit problems uh, first emerged, uh, culminating in Evergrande's default in 2021, Country Garden was actually seen as a safe haven. Uh, but now, as mentioned, it is itself on the brink of uh, default. Um, and so this is, uh, of course, uh, you know, exacerbating the, uh, the ongoing economic uh, slowdown, uh, adding a financial dimension to the current uh, um, macro risks uh, in, in China. 
And, um, and finally, uh, credit demand uh, by private firms and households have shrunk considerably, uh, though I think it's important to emphasize that a Japan-style deflationary spiral is still not evident, which um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that um, later. Uh, so all in all, the overall GDP growth target of, quote, around 5%, unquote, uh, for this year is now at risk. Um, despite the assists that it should be getting from the lower base effects uh, due to last year's uh, depressed economic activity from the uh, from the various uh, COVID lockdowns. Um, now, more recently, the PBOC has indeed stepped up defense of the uh, renminbi, uh, particularly after dollar CNY reached the 730 level in recent days, which uh, which. Uh, uh, matches the high that was reached uh, in the autumn of last year. Um, so I think it's becoming clear that um, the authorities are trying to, uh, to to at least you know defend this line for the time being, um, and uh, we are seeing a combination of uh, persistent uh, lower than expected dollar CNY daily fixes, uh, and also more recently. Uh, funding squeezes in the offshore RMP market to try to defend this uh, 730 level. Uh, now, all said and done, I think it's also important to emphasize that uh, despite the news being rather uh, uh, gloomy as it is, um, that uh, it is not entirely all negative, uh, as, as mentioned. China has not entered into a Japan-style deflationary spiral, in my view. So credit growth is very weak, but uh, credit by and large is still growing. So credit uh, growth has not turned negative uh, at an overall economy-wide level at this point. Uh, it's weak, but still growing. And also, uh, recently, there was a lot of headlines about the fact that the headline CPI inflation rate in China fell into negative territory on a year-on-year basis. And now that is true, but at the same time, when the data came out, the core CPI number actually ticked higher and core CPI is still in positive territory. I, I think it's fair to say that there are significant base effects uh, that is driving the negative headline CPI rate in China. Um, and um, it's not yet clear uh, that uh, we are in a persistently deflationary cycle in China uh, at this point. Um, so, um, again, it's important to emphasize that, you know, despite all the negative news uh, and, and all this talk about the Japan-style uh, deflationary spiral, China is not yet um, at that stage. And I will end it there. Thank you. Okay, so thank you everybody for joining this edition of Macro Minutes. Uh, the narrative in financial markets is fluid, and right now uh, the trend is your friend. Uh, but we think that might change in the coming weeks and months, so stay tuned to our publications or reach out to us directly for additional insights into what we're thinking on the direction of yields and uh, curves. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.